What's up everyone and welcome to episode 133 of the Just an Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and find out what makes them tick. I uh, hope everyone's well, hope everyone had a lovely past seven days since our last acquaintance, I guess that's the term I'm using, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, hope everything's good in, in your world, listener, um, had quite a, a busy week myself, which... I always prefer I prefer being busy, especially when it's doing stuff that I love and enjoy and not my monotonous day job. Um, but yeah, on Wednesday went and saw Life of Agony and Doyle in Southampton, which was, was pretty cool. Not loads of people there, which was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, I think I'd kind of put Life of Agony a bit on a pedestal. Um, like, when I was younger, Soul Searching Sun was one of my favourite albums um, I then kind of revisited their back catalogue uh, obviously got into Rivers Run Red and the song Through and Through kind of was an introduction for hardcore for me um, m- me and my brother joke that I, well I still can but at the time when I was younger could recite the song word for word and actually sound like Keith slash now Mina of the band um, and like yeah just kind of nailed that song so it was cool to see them it was really sort of surreal to see Doyle as well up close and, and personal um, I managed to take a couple of photos of, of him as well so if you want to see those at Tim Burbeck photos on Instagram little plug um, but yeah he is massive but in terms of muscular not fat um, which I wasn't expecting but it wasn't really my thing but it was pretty cool um, then Saturday went to an all day in Brighton which was organised by the lovely people over at Astral Noise um, they asked me to come along and take some photos which I endeavoured to do so haven't got round to editing them yet because I've been pretty busy but we'll get those up again Instagram, have a look at those but they will also be up on the Astral Noise site in the coming days um, and then finally I went to see Orville Peck and I still can't get over it I fucking love Orville Peck. Um, Pony is up there with one of my favourite records of this year. Um, And he was just everything that I wanted him to be and so much more. And to see him in the Green Door store in Brighton was something even more special because I love that venue and it's really small and intimate. Um, And I think the next time he comes over to the UK, it will definitely not be in a venue that small. Um, So yeah, it was just a really nice, wholesome show. And... It put me in a really good mood, which is always lovely. I mean, going to gigs always puts me in a good mood, but this even more so because it was on a Sunday night. I knew I had to go to work the next day, but this fully perked me up, so totally, totally worth it. Um, also, quick one before we get into the chat for this week, a little bit of self-promotion plug. Um, this week, my band, The Divorcee, we've got a couple of shows, so if you are in the south coast, and so wish to see me scream into a microphone, then come along, hang out. Um, we are playing The Edge of the Wedge in Portsmouth on Wednesday, which is uh, October 30th. Forgot my dates then. Um, and then we are playing in Southampton on Saturday at the fire station, which is November 2nd. So, yeah, be nice to see some friendly faces and come say hi. Um, right, let's get into this week's guest and I am joined by guitarist, vocalist and composer Mike McKenzie. Uh, Mike is probably best known for his work during his time uh, as part of the Red Chord. Um, we talk 
about him trading a finger skateboard for metal records and that kind of being his path into listening to metal uh not really having many friends growing up that were kind of into that heavier music but still sort of finding a path and finding a way into that world um and now how he kind of has become a career musician and and what those paths have led him down so yeah and as always so much more in the conversation so please sit back enjoy the chat i have with mike and i'll see you on the other side Joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is guitarist, vocalist, composer extraordinaire Mike McKenzie. Mike, thank you very much for for taking some time out of your busy day to join me. How's how's everything in your world? Uh good. Very busy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Um, just uh, piling on lots of things on top of things. Yeah, as I tend to do. I was going to say you you seem to be a a very very busy man. So I really appreciate you taking some time. <laughs> Oh, of course. Um, as kind of mentioned before I kind of hit record properly, the show is called Just an Insight. I'd like to start at the very beginning. So the the basic question I always open with is, what what was your kind of insight into alternative music? What kind of got you into that world of things? Um, at playing it or, or listening? Just, yeah, or... just kind of like your first introduction. Like where, where did you first oh. kind of come across things? Um, probably... Let's see, I probably, where things got heavy, um, probably Metallica's Injustice for All, my neighbor had a copy of that, and also Testament, The Legacy, he had had that on cassette, and I traded um, a little finger skateboard for that cassette. (laughs) Nice. You know, at like age nine, that's like, I couldn't believe, that's such a unbalanced trade you know like, <laughs> yeah like a cassette of a metal record you know that's just that's just something you could, it's so hard to get my hands on at that age and and he wanted this little finger skateboard i was like oh, i'll give you a thousand finger skateboards for that and yeah. uh we listened to the legacy all the time i uh, he probably got me into he was really the one who got me into like or that i the person who exposed me to heavier stuff i heard i, I listened to stuff on the radio and at the time, there was a lot more metal being played. I mean, I guess now there's probably metal being played, but it was a you know end of the '80s, early '90s. There was a lot of there was a lot of hair metal with a lot of guitar solos everywhere. And I always would tape the guitar solos, just the guitar solos, because I didn't really care about some of the songs. Yeah. Um, and then then I heard that Metallica record and Megadeth, Rust in Peace. That was another early one. Um, creator endless pain then it started to discover you know the more brutal stuff so when you say the kind of that sort of discovering of the the more brutal stuff what what was your kind of because I, I always kind of like to find what the journey is from from that first introduction to the the harder stuff so to say so what were you kind of seeking out what were, what was the more brutal stuff that you were listening to well i really um i was really just obsessed with like chuggy guitars right. and um like really scooped mid-range metal guitars of that time. I think, uh, you know, there were a number of points that, that pointed me in that direction, but one uh, big one was definitely um, a radio show uh, called Pirate Radio with Lon Friend. And it was, uh, I think it was, I think it must have been, <clears throat> I don't know how radio really worked with, 
I, you know, in that case, but it was like a radio show that was broadcast, I think multiple places in the country, but it was definitely not a local radio station. Right. Um, and, uh, and I don't know where they, where they broadcast from and I don't know where they broadcast to, but they did, they did play it on, um, a local radio station in, in Boston and Lon friend would, you know, he, he's, I think he's still around. He, I, I definitely see him pop. I've seen him pop up in like documentaries and stuff. Um, I don't really know the guy's career, but he definitely, he did this show and he would talk about heavy music and all kinds of stuff. And one episode they had, um, uh, Chuck Sheldiner from death and Chris Barnes from at the time, cannibal corpse on it being interviewed. And they played, um, I remember I was waiting for them to play a Cannibal Corpse song, and I must have missed that, but I taped <laughs> the interview. But they played Death the Philosopher, um, and I was just like blown away that there was something like that being played. It wasn't the, my first experience hearing that stuff, but it was definitely like a very memorable one where yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And uh, I remember being um, just so excited. And then I got a copy of Cannibal Corpse's um, uh, "Eaten Back to Life," and I, it blew me away that that this band had like gory cover art, like horror movie lyrics, and they were heavy. Because I had already listened to like I was already into like Slayer and stuff like that, um, which you know, as a young kid, that scared me, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah. It was like you know, terrifying. I was raised in a Catholic household, uh, so I definitely. Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to listen to like a lot of the stuff I wanted to. Yeah. And I discovered actually, you know what? A good point was I discovered um some Christian metal bands at the Christian bookstore my mom used to take me to. Okay. And I remember finding some stuff, and I you know like I remember finding a Mortification record of an Australian band, and there was like the guys in the were on the back of the tape, like around candles and looking all creepy. And the cover art had skulls on it, and the songs had Satan in the title. So I was just kind of like, I don't care if they like Satan or if they hate him, but they're singing about him, that's all I care about. <laughs> yeah. I just want to hear dudes yell Satan. At that point in my life, you know, 11 years old, I just want to hear people yell Satan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They might hate him, but whatever. Yeah. We're still thinking about it, that's what I'm into. And you mentioned, obviously, that growing up in a sort of Christian household. So was there... Were you part of like a musical family? Was music quite a prominent thing in in your house? No, uh, I music wasn't really. I mean, my parents were fans of music, but um, they didn't play instruments. Um, I no, not like my uncle Tommy played guitar, and I actually borrowed his guitar because he was a lefty, and that like sort of got me started playing. But um, other than him, uh, no one in my family played music. Okay. Uh, my parents were very supportive of me playing music. They just, it just wasn't, I wasn't raised around music. Yeah. Like being, you know. So you, I guess that poses the question then, apart from your uncle, like where did you all kind of want to to play music come from? Was it, because you mentioned obviously earlier, like the sort of guitar solos and stuff. So was it hearing that and then wanting to emulate it? Where did that kind of come from? Um, I always, I often say that I, I play guitar because of James Hetfield and, and, and <laughs> And, uh, and justice for all, but really, I think that that's just. I really think I just it just formed a lot of my guitar playing style. Yeah. But I think I probably play guitar for a really silly reason. Um, 
my neighbor and I, the one who uh, got me into heavy stuff, he and I wanted to start a band. We were like nine or ten, and we were just banging on stuff. And he had this like ridiculous toy guitar called a Hot Licks guitar, and you could make noises with it, but it wasn't like a real instrument. And he also had a snare drum from school. I guess he was in like some kind of band thing. Um, I didn't really pay attention to what was going on in school. <laughs> Um, and we would make noise in his basement. And one day he decided he, it was his idea. He was like, well, I think you're a little better on the guitar, meaning the hot licks fake guitar. And I'm a little better on drums. So I should be the drummer. You should be the guitar player. And I asked my parents if I could have a drum set at one point. And they said, no. So, and my uncle had this guitar. So it was like guitar. It is. So I actually think I started playing guitar just because it was convenient. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> You know, and I was like 10 years old or, you know, or nine. I think I started actually playing when I was 11. And it really was just sort of like, I just want to make noise. I like the sound of guitars. I like metal. I need to be part of this somehow, yeah. you know. And then in terms of kind of moving on then for your kind of, I guess, musical exploration, obviously from an outsider looking in, especially sort of, sort of late 80s early 90s even up until 2000s like boston and massachusetts in general was kind of a a hotbed for sort of hardcore metal yeah that sort of world sort of thing so when did you kind of get exposed to the live aspect of it and sort of going to shows in boston well i didn't really go to a lot of shows growing up because i didn't have a means to get anywhere right and i did and i didn't have friends that were into metal all through school i had one friend who was into hardcore and i was like the one kid i knew who was into death metal and he was the one kid who was in hardcore and we were friends based on the fact that we had nobody else to talk about our, our <laughs> yeah. weird thing with and we would make each other tapes like mixtapes and uh and just not like them like i'd made a, <laughs> like a tape with like a bunch of death metal and 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 he wouldn't like it, and he'd make me a bunch of, like, a hardcore mixtape, and I wouldn't like it. But we would still do it and be like, well, you know, we, we're, we're connecting somehow. Because, yeah, yeah. You know, we're both two, like, weird weird kids in our own worlds. And he, he went to a lot of shows, and I just, like, I didn't because I, you know, I just didn't. Um, I was definitely, like, a kid that kind of hung out in my room and played my guitar and sort of lived in my own world. So yeah. I tried to get my friends into death metal and stuff like that but they just you know i was in high school in the 90s everybody was into nirvana and crap like that so they just you know they were close to be they were like sort of accepting of it because they were into some music that was you know like the grunge stuff happening at the time had elements of metal like alice in chains always had you know metal elements but so people were accepting of it but they could never get past the growls or the like or blast beats or whatever and and as i got more and more into it it just pulled me further and further away from what my friends were listening to yeah so it was just always a thing that i did on my own until i met the guys in the red cord and uh i actually played in a band before that uh that was called sheol and then we changed our name to uh the flux capacitor nice and we played a show with the pre-red chord band ictus and that's how i met guy and uh so the guys in the flux capacitor were in were like getting into death metal and stuff at that point it was like after it was like right after high school and uh 
and we played you know we just played like a mixed bag of heavy music and then the red chord guys were definitely like more serious about playing you know death metal and dudes in that band were really into hardcore so that was like my more exposure to like they really loved um like those guys were all about like helmet mad ball buried alive and suffocation yeah and like you know and and also uh and we talked about human reigns all the time we always that was like another common thread with us um and uh yeah so that was kind of like my so playing with the red chord was probably my like re- i was playing shows with my high band in high school but my band in high school was like it was like three dudes who wanted or three or four at between three and four depending on the time of like three or four guys who all wanted to do different things right. so we were playing you know high school shows with a mixed bag of bands of all different styles and you know, I still felt like a the weird metal kid that didn't have a place. <laughs> so, um, were, were there not kind of because um, you said like you didn't really have many people to sort of go to the shows with, sort of thing. So, were you not really kind of attending many shows just as a punter before the red cord sort of thing? Um, well, in high school I wasn't, but uh, but after you know, once I had a car, I I didn't have a car till I was like 18 right um and I had a car so I could go to show I would go to shows by myself yeah um because nobody wanted to go and um you know I tried to talk them into it I'd be like oh I'm going to see I remember seeing um Angel Corpse and uh I was trying to get everybody I was like this band is awesome and nobody would go so I went alone I would do that until I started playing with the Red Court guys and then then I was going to stuff with them, some, some of those guys sometimes, or, or friends from that circle that I started to meet, um, and playing shows more, so I was more out. Honestly, it's kind of weird to say, but I've never really been huge on seeing live music. Um, okay. I, I really enjoy seeing live bands, and there are certain bands that I will really always make an effort to see, but generally, it's not like... You know, it, it's it's a weird thing to say since I play live music. But <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I I just don't. I've never really sought that out. I guess. I mean, even playing shows, I love playing live. But, I mean, the real reason I do it is to make records. That's what I want to do. Yeah, you know? no, that's fair enough. And I think like that's quite interesting because I think an, a thing that I always kind of pose to people is, especially more the, the more sort of hardcore leaning people that I speak to is that. Is, is there kind of that one moment that they are uh, a live show and they kind of think, oh, well, this is what I want to do. It's a, it's a tangible thing that's attainable, so, so to say. So yeah. I guess for, for you, was that not necessarily the path of wanting to pursue music? Was it more the creative side rather than the wanting to be on the stage and play live? So, yeah, it's definitely never been about playing shows. Um, I... I, I do though have a lot of moments to this day still where I watch a band and I'm just like wow that was amazing I want to play a show yeah. I want to be playing right now like I definitely I think I warmed up to the that idea a lot more once Red Court started doing stuff and shows started to feel different to me um, and like the live energy and all that stuff and and being there with the people that are supporting you and 
you know, the, that experience became a thing that I really value. Um, but the, yeah, the, ultimately the first reason that I wanted to ever do it is because I wanted to, uh, write and record music that I cared about. And I wanted to hear finished products, you know, like a hero record that I did. Um, that's the most fun to me. That's the part that I, that I really love. But, mm. but in time I became, you know, like I, I want, I still want to play live. I love that experience too. It's just, it's just a very different part of it. Yeah. Um, and not as, and not as critical for me, you know, like if I had to, you know, if I could never play a show again, I could live with that. Um, it would be a a bummer. It's not what I want, but I could get, you know, but if I could never write music again, that's a different story. Yeah. No, of course. Um, uh, and you, you mentioned kind of, the uh, Flux Capacitor band that you were in before the record, but so was that kind of like your first foray into to playing music yourself then? Um, no, because I, I I played in this band in high school that cha- the name changed a lot, but we ultimately settled on Alewife, which was just the name of a it's just the name of a uh, of a tea stop on the on the subway line here. Right, <laughs> um, it's nothing interesting, but. Uh, we played some shows around our hometown and, you know, not a whole lot of stuff, but, uh, that was probably, um, I mean, I don't want to, what I was saying earlier about not, I, I want to make it clear that I do love playing. Yeah. Lines, yeah. No, no, no. You know, yeah. I, I feel like I was, I feel like I'm sounding like I'm putting it down or something. <laughs> I, I love playing sh- live shows and I, and I look forward to, uh, to doing that. Um, especially more so now, uh, than I used to. But yeah, that band played a little bit, and then you know, uh, high school ended, and we went our separate ways. And, yeah. Um, the main guy in that band, my best friend growing up, moved away. He went to school in New York, and now he lives in Texas. So we don't um, we don't write music together anymore, obviously. But yeah. you know, so we kind of did our own thing, and then this band that the flux capacitor was a bunch of guys from my hometown also. And, uh, we started playing out a little bit and then, but it really didn't pick up until I joined up with the red cord because they were really, uh, they were really like set on playing lots of shows and, and doing it a lot. And, and it, that, and actually playing with the red cord kind of changed my perspective a little bit because that band definitely was about in the beginning, that band was about, the live yeah. show more so than the recording. Yeah. So our whole thing was, you know, we put out, it took us forever to put out a record. We did. And then it took us like another three years to put out another one because we were just all about playing shows. We didn't care as much about writing. Mm. So as a band. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that very first band was that kind of metal leaning or because as you said, not many people in your sort of, a group of friends growing up was necessarily into that sort of thing. So, what sort of style was that? That initial band. Well, that was um, it was th- it was like like I said, three or four guys who wanted it to be different things. So, like one guy, my best friend Ryan, who played in that band, he he and I basically started it because we wanted to play music together, and you know it was like our whatever we were we were getting into stuff. And uh, I was always I was always making him tapes of death metal stuff or anything heavy that he would never listen to. Yeah. And uh, 
anytime we would get it, one of us would get a new tape, we would copy it for the other, the other one. And, uh, I eventually started getting tapes that he was just not interested in at all, <laughs> but I'd still make copies for him. I'd be like, Oh yeah, check it out. Um, and his, his friend growing up, it was basically, it started with me and him and his, uh, close friend growing up, uh, was like an earlier friend when we were real young and Andrew, uh, was the uh, piano player, guitar player. He was Ryan's friend who was like this unbelievable musician, like just writing incredible stuff when he was like 12, just way ahead of everybody else. Right. And uh, But he was really interested in just completely different stuff than us. You know, like he loved Richard Marks and Yanni, which I ended up getting into Yanni because of him. Yeah. But uh, he was into all this like, just stuff that I wasn't that I stuff that at the time I was like that's what my parents listened to, you know. <laughs> yeah. like, um, and I was obsessed with playing the heaviest thing possible, which he didn't like. And then Ryan wanted to Ryan kind of drifted around in this like he was like really into Nirvana and then Leonard Cohen and all this kind of uh, just completely different direction. And then our then we got a drummer who wanted to play like grunge stuff because again it was the 90s so it was like one guy trying us to I, I tried to convince them to cover a suffocation song once which was just <laughs> a ridiculous idea um, we were just all pulling in different directions it was just it ended up being this weird awkward band of some cool ideas and a lot of weird unrealized or partially realized things and I don't know I feel like we made some cool stuff for some stupid young kids but yeah I haven't listened to it in years. I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we kind of delve into the the red cord days, so so to say, I've got to ask you. It probably is publicised somewhere, but I couldn't find it in doing my research. So apologise if this is a story you've told numerous times. Okay. But Gunface, where has that come from? Oh, so that's um. So basically, let's see. It was I was in this um. We used to make a bunch of cable access TV shows in my hometown okay. um, back when when cable access was, you know, I guess I guess it, it's different now that the internet exists. Anyone can make anything, but at yeah. the time, you could. Our hometown had a TV studio that, for those of you who don't know who, or what how that works, hometown had a TV studio that we as um, citizens of the town could use and had the basically had the. The privilege of making a TV show, uh, whatever we wanted. So we made a bunch of dumb shows. Um, we were in the TV production class in high school, which kind of got us got us in. And then we would make all these idiotic shows with a lot of sketch comedy. Or there's one show we made called Call Us Up, where you literally we would get out of work, and it would be like 5 p.m. Our the show would be on, and people would it was a live call-in show, but we didn't even have a topic people would just call in and then we'd be like hey what's going on you're on call us up or we just talk about nothing <laughs> Brilliant. Like, we would like eat, be eating pizza or whatever people would call in mostly just our friends calling in yeah um and then we had there's a show called uh Gunface that i started i put together because i wanted to make a ridiculous obnoxious thing i named it Gunface because i thought that sounded stupid <laughs> and uh you know I, th I was like this is idiotic sounding and ridiculous let's call it that 
there was no point to calling it that other than it sounded idiotic. Um, and then when I joined up with the Red Chord, our drummer, Mike Justin, our first drummer, he was named Mike as well, so they started calling me. They were like, what are we going to call you? And they liked, I showed them the Gunface show, and they started calling me that. <laughs> right. And, and it just kind of stuck, and people still call me that. I mean, <laughs> so it's just, uh, yeah, it was literally like almost 20 years ago, and it's, it's still... It's still, uh, still with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, I think that's a perfect segue into, obviously, the, the Red Chord. Obviously, I won't go into the full history of the band because I think that's well publicized everywhere but something that I did want to touch upon so my kind of introduction to to you guys was through clients which I think was the jumping in point for a lot of people um did that album feel like it kind of had that kind of gravitas to it or was it a thing that at the time like you didn't really know what you kind of had and things just kind of built and built and built. How was that kind of timing for the band? Um, it's hard to say cause it was a while ago, but I, I'm pretty sure at the time we were really excited because, uh, we had made the first record. Um, and, uh, you know, we were really, I guess there was a long buildup to making clients because it had been three years since we'd released the last one. Yeah. And, the, and the first record took us a while to make too, because, you know, some of the songs had been coming together for a long time. Like a lot of bands, first records, um, like a lot of musicians, first records, your first record oftentimes has so very old songs on it because it's the first time you ever made something yeah. like that. And, and you're using, you're drawing from all the wells possible. Um, and the second record was more like, oh, well, now we we're starting from this point. Like, you know, the first one, it's like the point, the starting point could be years ago, but the second one, the starting point is usually shortly after the first one. So, yeah. um, I remember it feeling like it took us a while to get there. Um, and we'd done a lot. We've just been playing a lot of shows. Signing a metal blade felt like, you know, a big step. Cause we were, we were still pretty young and, um, you know, and there was a lot of like exciting stuff happening, you know, like just the idea that somebody was going to pay a bunch of money to let us record a record at like a, a crazy studio and, you know, and like do all this work. Not that, you know, we had that, we did stuff for the first record. The first one there was, you know, it was like a, not very much money because it was a smaller, um, label and we and you know we didn't we we're just kind of working with what we had yeah so it felt re really exciting and big to us because it was a new experience and um, and a lot of the stuff that followed from around that time was that you felt that way um, you know like Mike Bailey and Brian Slagle from Metal Blade flew out to this to Massachusetts we're in Hadley, Mass, where uh, Zeus's studio, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's still there, I don't think it's still there, but uh, I think he moved it to a different location, but they flew out to that to the studio to like listen to the record oh, as awesome. it was nearing completion, and that felt surreal, yeah. like the, <laughs> yeah. the guys from the record label out in LA are flying out just to listen to your music, like that's, uh, I think I was like 24 three or 24 that's weird you know? <laughs> yeah. uh 
and we were all excited and you know so it did feel really big to us I, it didn't feel big in the sense that like this record's going to be huge it felt big in the sense like i can't believe we're doing this we're, yeah, we yeah. get to do all this and you know like so many years later i still feel like that i still feel like i can't believe we get to do this cool stuff you know and then in terms of kind of i mentioned earlier about sort of like the the boston and the massachusetts scene and correct me if i'm wrong because obviously i have no idea of being inside of that world but for me that like the red chords music was always really abrasive and really chaotic but never kind of fit in perfectly with somewhere like it had its hardcore elements it had its metal elements it had its death metal elements and things like that so when you guys were starting out was it quite difficult to sort of find a bedding especially in the boston world yeah i think um i I definitely i felt that a lot um early on uh for a long for a long time actually um i think we probably all felt that i definitely had the i had like insecurities about it where i was like we're not hardcore enough to be like on these hardcore shows we're too metal on these metal shows we're too hardcore so we're just we don't really we didn't definitely didn't feel like we fit in a lot of places but we played with a lot of different bands um you know and there were definitely times where we felt really out of place uh i remember early on one of the things somebody said i think it was our first tour we were doing a lot of like crusty power violence punk shows um and I remember someone saying, uh, those jocks play good metal. <laughs> and I remember being like bummed out by that. I was like, what? what? Why are they calling us jocks? Like, I didn't look like a jock at all. I had this long, like shitty long hair and I wore sandals on stage. You know, like, <laughs> this, like weird looking out of place guy. And then there were dude, I think it was just because at the time it was like dudes with short hair who don't wear metal shirts and are, you know, we made fun of, we used to like, it was just, I guess that was the perception of us. Yeah. In some, in some, at some shows, at least at like these like, you know, punk shows we were playing early on, and we were playing with a lot of like crusty grind bands, and, you know, we were just kind of we were just kind of the black sheep in a lot of places. Mm. Um, but it didn't really matter because, you know, we were getting to play our stuff and it was well received at the time you know we were excited that people cared and when they listened to it they were like oh it doesn't sound like what i'm looking at (laughs) this weird group of dudes who look like they don't belong in a band together yeah and is it like was the on the flip side of that was there kind of a moment i guess you kind of touched upon it with the whole sort of metal blade thing but was there a moment when within the band like you kind of thought like oh, this is now clicking and people are starting to actually understand what we're going for. And because, as I said, like my jumping in point was was clients and I was kind of in for the ride from there. So was it kind of that time or was it a little bit later that you kind of felt like, oh, no, we're starting to get a following and people are starting to take take notice of us? Well, I feel like there were like two things. There were like two moments like that with us. we put out the first record and people had ideas of that and you know we sort of built a following based on that first record and then when clients came out a lot of the people into the first record rejected it because a lot of those fans were you know they just felt 
they they thought it was more polished or more metal or maybe it was because it was on metal blade um you know it was on like a heavy metal label you know like yeah. a label that put out classic heavy metal records um and previously uh you know it was like completely uh you know like it just like robotic empire um just had such a different roster and a different vibe and i think our fans and the people we're playing to um i don't know i guess just had such a different mentality their record their record they're different anyway you know um but i think that some people were bummed and clients sort of started a different chapter for the Mm. band um i remember just i remember reading things people wrote on the internet about how they didn't like clients and and uh and it's funny now because a lot of people cite clients as the record that made us you know what we are and we definitely changed a good amount in that time um i feel like mike justin's drumming style had a lot to do with the formation of the band sound and mike and kevin really kevin our, our original guitar player their styles really had a lot to do with what the red chord was and and how it you know and the identity of the music yeah and then clients definitely shifted a bit brad's drumming style kind of shifted things in a slightly more metal direction and it was almost as if a new we were coming out uh, there's sort of a new identity coming out of our original identity so we you know we definitely you know we were changing and, you know, people don't like that. So, <laughs> yeah. people most of the, I, you can always, you know, you'll always have people who are like, I like, I want them to do the same thing, and then there are people who are like, I don't want them to do the same thing. So, we've never been a band that wants ever wants to do the same thing. We just get bored easily. That's why yeah. we have so many riffs. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, you can assume that we're gonna at least try to be doing something different, even if we're not successful. Yeah, and I think. Especially when I was sort of younger and and kind of discovering you guys, like, and I I mean this as a compliment, it may not sound like it, but if you were a record fan, like, you were kind of known, like, it was kind of seen as like, oh, you know your stuff, because the record was kind of an obscure band to like, especially here in the UK, I think. Right. Um, But over time, like, especially, like, the way that music is going now, you hear a lot of these up-and-coming bands and there's clear influences from what you guys were doing in the early 2000s in their music now. And some bands are even citing the red chord as influences sort of thing. So is that strange for you to see that like you were almost kind of like the outcasts and the outsiders of, of a time when you were at your peak to now being lauded as these, this maybe like iconic influential band. Um, it's definitely weird, but at the same time, I I do feel like that kind of happens with bands. I don't know that it's... I'm not saying that it's uh, really... Uh, that we really necessarily deserve that kind of credit, but, mm. but I do find that bands, that people do like to cite the... Uh, I don't know, the uh, unsung bands of the past. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've always felt like we got... I think we all kind of felt like we got way more attention than we than we ever expected, and uh, you know it might seem from 
from an other perspective that we were an obscure band, but to us, we were like, I can't believe that this many people care. We didn't <laughs> yeah. ex- like we didn't expect anyone to care about what we were doing. We just wanted to do it, and it was just a really nice bonus that people also like it. Um, and then turned into a thing that we did. You know, when we started playing, we were not planning on being a some. I know when I know when I joined the band, I was not thinking this is going to be a career. I was yeah. just like, I want to play this music with some guys that also like it. And then it just sort of kind of turned into, uh, at one point it just turned into a thing we were always doing. And, um, so I love the fact that people feel that way about our stuff, but I definitely don't, um, you know, we never really expected, we ne- we definitely never expected the kind of reaction that we got over the years. And, um, it's still very surreal to me to think about it that way. Yeah. And you kind of touched upon it there. That was what was going to be my, my next question is obviously now your life revolves around music. It's your, it is your job, it is your career pretty much. So was it, was there a moment in time that during the red cord that you kind of, cause obviously you guys were, as you say, you were touring a lot, you were doing records. So was there a moment that you kind of personally felt like, oh, I can do this as a job, like, this is what I want to do, rather than it, not saying it just for fun, because obviously it still is fun, but, like, that transition of it being just the band to this is now my my livelihood. Um, Was there a point when that, you were saying, was there a point when that... Uh, when it became more apparent, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what it's funny. I was just talking with Greg, our bass player, about last night. We were talking about, um, I'm not sure exactly. He, um, we were talking about having, you know, played so many shows together, and we're all we don't remember who was at what. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the first time we got paid on tour, like we had money that we made, and we were like, we can pay ourselves. You know, yeah. was probably a turn a point where we were like, this is kind of real now we've been paying we've been like basically paying into being able to do this and taking time off work and just losing money um and then um and then like probably the next point was when we like later we quit our jobs um sorry something's just i keep getting this alert on my phone i'm trying to stop (laughs) it from happening um Yeah, I think, like, you know, years later we quit our jobs, um, or, you know, mostly to focus on touring full-time. That probably was one of those moments. Another tour that we did uh, when we did Sounds of the the Underground, um, this tour that happened in 2005, Lamb of God headlined in. It was a bunch of bands. Yeah. It was a bunch of bands that I, like, wanted, you know, like a bunch, there were, like, musical heroes of mine on that tour. Gene Hoagland was on the tour playing with Strapping Young Lad, which, of course, has Devin Townsend and uh opeth was playing it and it was just like this and we were playing huge crowds it was like a real like whoa i can't believe we're doing this moment yeah that definitely started to feel like this is very real now you know there's like this is a real tour you know mm. we not that we weren't doing them before but this is like a you know this is like a a tour that career musicians are on you know yeah um so those moments definitely stand out as as that 
but uh, I don't know. There wasn't really any one particular moment, just lots of little things. Yeah. So when did you kind of, I guess, transitioning from just purely playing like the stuff with the red chord to the more kind of composer aspect of of your life now? Because obviously I know you're still obviously heavily involved in in heavy music, but there's another string to your bow, so to thing. So when did that kind of element sort of come into your life? Um, well, I always wanted to do a lot of other stuff. Uh, and I was always working on other projects in the meantime. Mm. Uh, I just didn't get around to releasing anything for a long, long time. Um, the funny thing is I joined, so I joined Beyond the Six Seal shortly after, like only a couple years after the Red Chord. And we made a record that same year as the first Red Chord record. Right. So I always had that kind of like, I'm going to do other things, you know? Um, and I always wanted to write, um, I was I always wanted to write for film. So I was always trying to like work other things in. And the problem is I never, I didn't really pursue a lot of my other interests musically while I was doing the red chord for some reason, even though I needed to Yeah. creatively, I just sort of put a lot of stuff on the back burner stomach earth i i was doing on the side but just releasing like weird demos once in a while on mp3.com <laughs> and uh and like some other stuff like that i don't even remember what else i just remember making my mp3.com page and it was called it wasn't called stomach earth at the time it was called neuralthotep um but yeah i it was after the red court settled down that I started to really pursue yeah. some of this other non-metal stuff and I've got to I've got to ask because there's something that in, in doing my research came up Sesame Street obviously <laughs> first and foremost how did that come up and second of all what was it like working with them um, so it was actually it's funny it actually came up um, I was working on I was working doing some pitches for um, sync music with some guys that were out in LA and one of those guys I was actually in that old band the Flux Capacitor oh wow rock. okay so he was a high school friend and we got back in touch at one point and started talking about doing stuff and he connected me with the guys he was working with and I was pitching stuff for a bunch of ad spots and then I got the Sesame Street one um, which they also did two songs for that series as well and uh and they yeah so they hooked that up and then i wasn't working with sesame street directly we were working with an animation studio out of new york um i think they were called i'm not gonna try to guess because i think (laughs) i might say the wrong studio because i don't want to mix it up but yeah yeah um they we were working with them directly and then Sesame Street was. Then they were, they were dealing with Sesame Street because they were putting the whole video together. Um, so the only real input I got from Sesame Street it, was hearing that they didn't like the poop splash sound that I put in. They thought it was too <laughs> graphic, I guess. So they, so they wanted like a fake cartoony splash instead, which I was, thought was kind of funny because I'm like, you're literally having an animation of where the, when the poop is falling in the toilet, and the whole thing is about the toilet. But the sound of the actual poop landing in the toilet is too much for some reason. <laughs> um, it wasn't. I used, I made the sound in my sink. I dropped like some water in a bowl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
but like my toilet in my old apartment was isn't that recording and uh my friend's kids are are the voices uh yelling all the stuff um so it was really fun to do it, totally ridiculous you didn't didn't get get to meet big bird then was that no i didn't get to meet big bird no. <laughs> i never uh i did we're so many uh so many um we're far from each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. What's that, Kevin? I was trying to think of that, Kevin Bacon. Oh yeah, yeah, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, we're very, we're, we're several degrees away. Is what I was trying <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. Well, obviously, in terms of that, obviously you mentioned kind of like wanting to sort of do stuff for for film, and and obviously Sesame Street is a, a TV kind of aspect. So, is that kind of world something that this now op- opened up to you a bit more? Is it something that you're still kind of trying to pursue or like where where does your kind of i guess outside of like the alternative music world where does your kind of creativity sort of lie at the moment um well i do i my one of my like end goals in my career as a musician is definitely writing for film yeah and and video games and other things that i'm interested in where i can you know tell a story with sound so that's really always been the thing i'm working towards outside of playing making like metal records um i was pitching for a a lot of like tv spots commercials and stuff like that for a while but i don't it's not really where i want to be creatively it's just not it's just not it doesn't really serve me as i was kind of doing it because i you know there's potentially good money in it but it's really hard it's really hard to make it work and you spend a lot of time doing a lot of work that doesn't lead anywhere. Um, it was kind of wearing me down a little bit, and I wasn't able to. It was taking away time that I could have been writing stuff I cared about. And I was realizing I'd spend all day writing something, and then I I didn't want to write for my own project at the end of the day because I was burnt out on writing music. Yeah. Um, and that just, you know, I I had to pick one, and uh, so I decided that I. You know, it's sort of like touring. I never did merch or worked for a band on tour unless I was playing an instrument because I couldn't be on the road watching someone play every night and not be doing it myself. You know, so if I'm doing a job where I'm not playing music, it has to be not even related to music at all. Right, okay. Um, So I spent, you know, I, I worked for a catering company for years and, uh, you know, and I've worked lots of various jobs. I needed to separate that so that all of my energy creatively would be put into the things that I, the things that were mine. Yeah. And if we kind of segue onto sort of more what you're doing now, I think obviously part of the the way you wounds live experience. Um, so, how did you obviously? coming up out of the same Boston scene, I'm guessing that's how you kind of knew Jake, but how did you kind of become part of, of what Where Your Wounds is now? Um, well, we... Uh, actually, I didn't know Jake until we toured together. Right, okay. Um, I'd never... We hadn't met... Um, I met Kurt a long time ago because he recorded a, the Six Seal record, but I didn't really know the Converge guys. Um, we met... I, Jake and I met on a tour in 2005, I think maybe end of the year that we did with them. And we didn't really talk much back then. 
Um, it wasn't until years later that we uh, did another tour. We talked a little bit more about music and stuff. And at some point, Jake reached out about um, playing a guitar part, like a solo on an early Where Your Wounds thing. I'm not sure if he was calling it Where Your Wounds at the time or if it was, it might have been called that. I can't remember. It was a while back. Um, and I recorded a, a thing for him. And then, you know, some time went by and then he was like, I'm, I'm making this record. Um, and he was working on the solo record. It was uh, probably, must have been like 2013, I think. Because yeah. I was living in a, old, a different place then. And, uh, and I was just adding little pieces of things, little ideas and here, here and there. And, and we were talking about, you know, he was very open to like, Hey, see what you can try out, you know, like, see what you, what you feel from this. And, um, Oh, I said, see what you feel. I said, Hey, see what you feel. And my phone said, Hey Siri. (laughs) Oh God, that's awful. Um, I'm not talking to you. So, uh, yeah. So we went, we were, uh, kind of going back and forth talking about ideas and stuff. And, and, uh, and I played on a few of the tracks and then he was putting it together and eventually he was like, I want to play shows with this. We did, it was kind of a, it kind of had this organic growth where we, um, you know, we're talking about stuff and he was working on stuff and he was kind of, I feel like he was like kind of working out what he wanted the project to be. And yeah. It was sort of becoming a thing. And then the record came out and he's played shows for it. Um, and then that's playing the shows together, playing this, those songs from that, what was essentially a solo record with guests, that line of people from that live performance became the band Where Your Wounds. And then yeah. we made a record in a, as more of a band instead of that in that manner. And was that kind of like a an interesting experience for you? Obviously, you kind of mentioned a moment ago like with music sort of now being kind of like your life having to kind of remove yourself from from sometimes being in that creative world almost kind of relinquishing that to someone else like jake to to then just kind of be bought in in the beginning as a collaborator and then obviously to where it is now was that an interesting take for, for you so like not all the pressure was on you so much um, yeah, kind of, uh, I guess it forced me to look at things a little bit differently cause I've always been a little bit controlling right. in bands that I've played in. Um, I've always just been a little bit like, I used to be kind of difficult to work with in my opinion. Okay. Um, early, uh, you know, writing with red cord, I definitely had lots of, uh, like very, um, stubborn perspectives of writing and. I didn't take criticism criticism so well. Um, you know, that's just stuff you learn, I guess, from playing with people and yeah. making stuff with people. But by the time we got to making the Weary Wound stuff, I had thought about that a lot, and it had, it was during the time, like, Red Court kind of stopped doing stuff around 2011 after a tour we did. Mm. And so it had been a few years since I'd been really involved in things. Um, and I was working this, like, warehouse job at the time, and... I think. Uh, and I was trying to like approach it like, well, this is Jake's thing and I want to contribute to it, but 
but I have to not be controlling about ideas I have because that's the way I am. But it's not my thing. I have to like, you know, all the stuff I had done before was my th- it was my thing like, yeah. with everybody else. But I, I I felt I had a lot of agency, so I could. Well, I'm writing this part, so I get to you know. Um, so it made me approach it a little bit differently, and it and I also I knew because I had just made the Stomach Earth record uh, was which I had made by myself, uh, and uh, you know I played everything and rec- wrote it, and I didn't have it to answer to anyone. And so I was kind of looking at this from through that lens, like this is Jake's solo thing. It's his. It mat- It matters to him the way Stomach Earth matters to me, and for that reason, for those like, I have to. Uh, I have to respect it in that way. And I think he's a lot more laid back about this stuff, um, or he's a lot more welcoming. Yeah. To uh, to like input, but I was still viewing it as if he was me. And gonna be all very, very, you know, <laughs> yeah. and hold it close. Which, which ultimately, you know, he he was holding it close because it was, it was a new thing to do this project, and it was a new project, and you know, I feel like you do that with your most personal work. You definitely, you you, you hold it tightly, and it's and it's hard to let it go. At some point, you have to finish it and say it's done. Here's the record. The world gets to listen to it now and rip it apart if they hate it or whatever it is. It's no longer mine. Yeah. So I guess doing that and working on this stuff with him sort of, it definitely helped me um, develop a different collabor- like style of collaborating. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, with with where you were in, obviously, in the initial state, it was obviously Jake's sort of solo project. And obviously, we've mentioned your kind of composer work but obviously now we're seeing Mike McKenzie the record label runner owner putting out your own sort of stuff in in that aspect so is I guess to take this in two two counts is the record label been something that you've kind of wanted to do for a while and or is it just the way a means of you being able to kind of I guess as you kind of said there, that control, like control of your own sort of art and putting it out on your terms. It's kind of both of those things. Um, I wanted to, I definitely have always wanted to do something like this because I wanted there to be some sort of hub where I could do everything. Um, I didn't ever knew really how to do it. Uh, but I also wanted to, yeah, I also wanted to have total control and be able to direct, all of the ideas I had into one, you know, one place, um, and have ownership over my music and also have less people involved, you know, have one arrangement that happens for, because I've never been good at the business side of these things as most creative people figure out that they're, that this, you know, obviously we know lots of musicians are, and, and visual artists and people that make things are usually like, we're not doing this. We started doing this for some weird need yeah. that we have. We didn't do it to have a business. So at some point we're like, oh, I better buy business owner for dummies and all this crap. You know, like <laughs> yeah. we don't know what we're doing. We're just figuring it out clumsily a lot of the time. Um, so this definitely was something I'd always thought about but never knew how to execute. And then Jake approached me about it and, 
and he was like, you know, do you want to do some of these projects that you have? Because he, I, you know, he knew I had a lot of things that I didn't know what to do with, where ideas and music, I didn't know where to, where it should go, and uh, and I'm really grateful to to him for that because um, you know, now I feel like I have like a home base where I can try some things that I probably wouldn't have tr- tried otherwise. It took me forever to get stomach earth together. Um, and a lot of, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't know who to have release it. And guy from red Court came to me about that when he was doing black market. And he, again, like Jake, he was the guy that, that pushed me into doing it. He was like, you want to do this project. I know you want to do this. Just do it. Yeah. And I, and I will help you make it a reality. And, and, you know, again, I probably wouldn't have. Their record would have been languishing in my on my like hard drives and tapes, you know, um, for years to come before I came before I released it. Mm. So sometimes you need that person to nudge you a little bit. Yeah, and obviously from the the announcement, the first kind of bit that we're we're seeing is um, Resplendent Host. So can you talk me through a little bit more of of what that project is what it's going to be and and sort of where you're kind of pulling influences from in in that aspect for for that project so that project actually started as a series of exercises where i took visual um originally originally it was going to be video but but i ended up taking influence from still images right and decided i basically decided to score still images and try to create try to pull the feelings i had from those images into the aural world and so i made five tracks over the course of a few months i shared them a while back you know probably a small number of people who pay attention to my website or whatever saw them and then i decided to release them properly um as sort of a starting point for some of this work they're influenced by film scores mainly and that that vibe because i definitely uh which honestly most of my music is influenced by that stuff anyway yeah metal stuff just because i want i want i like music that tells a story uh not necessarily through lyrics so that was the inspiration behind that um there'll be more stuff of that nature i also had always toyed with the idea of i was like why can't i write a why can't i release a record under my name like people do is that weird yeah. <laughs> uh, and I really thought about that and couldn't make up my mind for the longest time once again I talked to Jake about it I was like what do I do should I do this under my name and he was like yeah why I don't see why not like there's you know but I was you know I overthink things and I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. well, should I use my full name or what should I do I don't know you know so I try to one of the things about this label is um removing some of the overthinking and just yeah. letting things happen because at the end of the day you can you can write another one you know uh unless you unless i die tomorrow i will get to write a lot more music and uh you know i plan on writing a lot more some of it might suck i don't know <laughs> <laughs> some of it plenty of it some other people will think suck sucks you know like i'm uh but I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, this, this record is, it's a little bit of an experiment too. Yeah. So. And I guess 
that's kind of what, what I was going to ask because I, I know that you've kind of said like this label is essentially for you it's kind of just a, a platform for for you to put out the things that you're working on but is it are you I don't want to say you're treating it as an experiment because a label isn't that in 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 any shape or form but does it allow you that freedom to kind of experiment with your own projects and see what works and see what doesn't uh yeah it definitely does um a lot of the stuff i'm going to release in the beginning will be digital only and then in time if something has a particularly um favorable response maybe that release will get a physical release or you know, there's some releases I have in mind that will be that I'm going to release them physically. That's just how it's going to be. And but a lot of them are, hey, let's see what, let's see what I, this is a thing I want to do. Let's see if people care. Mm. And I'm going to do these things one way or another. But um, I guess sort of what comes of them, you know, like I'm going to write this music and release it one way or another. But Maybe something. Maybe people like something I didn't think they were going to, and I end up doing a vinyl release of that yeah. project. So there is definitely going to be plenty of experimentation in this process. Yeah, perfect. Well, Mike, I've taken up too much, a lot of your time already, so I'll start to wind things down. Um, how I like to, to close things out is to ask my guests what their favorite song is, but with a bit of a twist. And okay. because you are particularly in two i guess well yeah we'll go with two bands um of of particular note that people may have heard of i'll give you two choices so if you can pick your favorite red chord and favorite way or wound song that you like to play live and why oh okay uh that's tough i'd probably say my favorite um red chord song to play live this probably changes but right now, I'd say it's probably. Uh, I really love playing um, "Tread on the Necks of Kings" from yeah. uh, "Pray for Eyes." It's a lot of fun on guitar. There's uh, chugging parts. There's noodly sort of parts. It's just a lot of fun for me to play. Yeah. Um, and I get to sing on it, so I think that's probably my favorite. And it's also playable. Some of our songs, <laughs> yeah. I have to really work hard to play tight, uh, and I don't have to work as hard to play that one. <laughs> um, Wear Your Wounds, I think my favorite song right now to play is probably Shrinking Violet from our newest record. Yeah. Because it's just this really painful uh, song that, um, you know, we get to play this ridiculous guitar thing at the end, and it's just very emotional. Wear Your Wounds is t such a different animal for me. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a new experience, yeah. definitely. Um, I think that's probably my favorite one to play or that's just right now yeah that's yeah. that'll probably change too <laughs> perfect brilliant Mike thank you very much for your time and look forward to seeing what what has on the horizon for you in the with this label and everything else it's, it's exciting times for yourself well thank you so much I appreciate this a lot no worries take care all right you too cheers bye So there we have it folks, thanks again to Mike for taking some time to have a little chat with me, really appreciate 
him taking some time out of a very very busy schedule um as always there'll be links to all his various musical projects uh linked in the description of this episode um just a quick note before we go this week uh the project that i've been teasing on the show for a couple of months now um or a few months i think i don't know whatever if you've been listening to the show you've heard me talk about it it's finally starting to shape up i'm hoping to kind of have an announcement in the next week or so um and then the thing itself will be out towards the end of november i hope anyway fingers crossed for that i hope you like it and i hope people will like it because it's a bit of a pipe dream for me taking a bit of a gamble but hey ho that's what life's all about um also I will be out on tour with Overo and Punch On uh, the last week in November, so there won't be in any episode there. But if you're at any of the shows, come say hi, come hang out. It'll be lots and lots of fun. Um, but yeah, for now, thank you for stopping by the Justin Insight podcast, and I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.